0: Welcome. I'm David Henry Huang, co-founder of the Columbia University School of the Arts International Play Reading Festival, along with Carol Becker, Dean of the School of the Arts. And we want to welcome you to the final event of this year's podcast festival, the Playwrights Panel, where we get to talk to the authors of these powerful, amazing, funny, important, and truthful works. So this is always an important time for me as a playwright to kind of geek out with my fellow writers. If you haven't heard the plays yet, they were released in our three previous episodes. So you can pause the program now and go back and listen to them, or you can stay with us here on the panel and delve into the readings later. Let's start with a land acknowledgement The Columbia University School of the Arts recognizes Manhattan as part of the ancestral and traditional homeland of the Leni lenape and Wappinger people. And by acknowledging these legacies of displacement, migration, and settlement were taking a small step toward the long and overdue process of healing and repair. The, um, I remember being at a White House conference on cultural exchange in 2000. Uh, it was in the closing days of the Clinton administration. Um, it was during the time when uh, the Supreme Court was still trying to figure out who the next president of the US was going to be. Um, and at that event, Madeleine Albright, who was uh, then go- the outgoing Secretary of State, uh, lamented that the Clinton administration hadn't done enough to promote artistic and cultural exchange. And I think it's fair to say that um, that hasn't really improved over the intervening decades. Um, and I'm particularly struck this year by how film and television seems to be uh, in America seems to be much more comfortable embracing international work and um, the success over the past uh, year and a half of, you know pieces shows like uh, like Squid Game and um, Parasite. And so theater really needs to kind of catch up, in this area, American theater. Um, The three works that we have presented in the International Play Read Festival podcast series this year, um, are Appointment with God, uh, by Asimwe Debra Kawe, The Dark, by Nick Nakoa, uh, Makoa, I'm sorry. And this is not a memorized script. This is a well-rehearsed story by Dima Mikhail Mata. Um, The plays are submitted um, and recommended and nominated by theater professionals who do international work, uh, both in this country and internationally. And then they are selected by um, a selection committee that I just want to acknowledge them for their uh, hard work and good taste. Um, Susan Bernofsky, Kate Lowald, Morgan Jeunesse, and Christian Parker, and so it's interesting each year to see what what the 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 class is, what is the cohort of plays, and what are the themes. And this year we see in these uh, in these amazing works uh, certain themes reoccurring: uh, migration, autobiography, colonization, the deconstruction of narrative, the unreliability of Perspective and multiple perspectives, and Uganda. Uh, this is the first year that we've had two plays by um, authors from uh, one one country. Uh, Nick uh, lives and works in the UK, but the play is set in Uganda, um, and Asimwe um, uh, is currently coming to us from uh, Uganda. So, um, I also want to encourage anyone who's um, watching this to, if you have questions, we will have a, a Q&A um, portion of this discussion, and please feel free to put your uh, questions in the Q&A function of the Zoom. Um, so I'd like to now introduce um, the three authors um, for the 2021 International Play Reading Festival. Um, please turn your cameras on and um, greet our viewers. Uh, Asimwa Debra Kawe was born in uh, southwestern Uganda. She's an award winning playwright, producer, and performer. Currently, the producing artistic director of Tabere Arts Foundation and co artistic director of the Kampala International Theater Festival. She's worked with the Sundance Institute Theater Program. Um, and she holds a uh, BA in Theater and Performing Arts from Makarewe, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing things, University in Kampala, and an MFA in writing for performance from uh, California Institute of the Arts. Uh, Nick Makoha is a Ugandan poet and playwright based in London and the founder of the Obisid- OS. Obesidian Foundation and his debut collection, Kingdom of Gravity, was shortlisted for the 2017 Felix Dennis Prize and nominated by The Guardian as one of the best books of 2017. Uh, Dima Mikhail Mata is a Beirut-based writer and actress. Uh, They're a Fulbright scholar, hold an MFA in creative writing from Rutgers University, And in 2014, they founded Cliffhangers, the first bilingual storytelling platform in Lebanon, uh, and they host monthly storytelling events along with parallel events such as storytelling workshops and performances. So thank you all of, uh, thanks to all three of you for allowing us to present your work, which has enriched us, uh, made us, Uh, feel more, made us understand more, uh, made us maybe feel a little smarter. um, And we cannot do this without you all. So um, thank you for your work and for joining us here today. Um, So I, let's just go around and I want, I'd love to ask uh, each of you where you're joining us from today, but also the origin stories of these plays. Um, how were they created? Uh, were they written, devised, rewritten? Um, what's your process? And if you wanna tell us a little bit about the theater companies where they uh, premiered, that would be fun too. So um, let's start with a same way.
1: Yes, so I'm joining you from Kampala, Uganda. Um, and I was just saying that it's very dark outside already. It gets so dark early here. Um, and to talk about the origin story of the play, I wrote the story uh, when I was a student, uh, the California Institute of the Arts. Uh, but before that, I had had some opportunities to travel to the United States And that also meant that I had been to the US embassy in Uganda to apply and be interviewed for for the visa to travel to the United States. And I remember the times, the few times I had been to the embassy, what really struck me was there were so many things that struck me. One was uh, the atmosphere, how tense it always felt especially on the part of the visa applicants. And of course, the other thing was the whole bureaucracy, what the visa applicants had to go through, the different stages of checking, of making sure that no one is entering the US embassy with weapons or with any nail cutters or with anything that was considered dangerous. Uh, And then the forms, Pages upon pages of of application forms that applicants had to fill. The image that really sticks to me is people carrying like folders, file folders of documents upon documents to truly prove that they had strong ties to their country and that they, after their visit to the United States, they would return to their country. Um, but I think the thing that truly stuck with me was the how the the whole process felt like a performance and how everything was very theatrical and the thing that i can never forget was how the applicants were treated almost like there was no dignity they they were not allowed to be human in fact we would be referred to as numbers. Number 24 approached the window. Number, you know, our names were stripped away. Um, So so many things and the fear that resided in people's bodies and the, the anxiety that was on their faces and how they were trading stories on how to make sure that they get visas. And so all of this was so interesting to me. And I remember eventually when I went for grad school at CalArts and having conversations with other international students, uh, I realized that that was what I experienced at the embassy in Uganda was not unique to Uganda. That some of the international students had gone through similar experiences, not all, some. Um, and uh, and I, I started researching for anything that was written about that creatively. And I'm I'm sure maybe it existed, but I did not see anything. And I knew that this was a story that I really felt needed to be told. And in addition, I had of course made friends with American students and faculty and sharing my experience and what I saw at the US embassy really surprised them. They did not realize that that is in some countries that is how the u.s was being represented and and to me that was really the origin um, of, of, of of the play and so i brought it uh, as a student and the first draft if i could talk a little bit about its history the first draft had a workshop in la uh, and had a, a reading at amazon theater and after that after i graduated i moved to new york city Um, And when I think I was a year old in New York City and Hot Ink Play Reading Festival picked it for for that festival that year, I can't remember the exact year. And before the festival, the play got a workshop with the Sundance Institute Theater Program, 29 hour workshop. Uh, And after that several, and I, I, I rewrote the play, but I kind of shelved it. Um, and But then a few years later, Boom Arts in Oregon uh, was really interested in giving it a workshop. Um, and it did have a workshop and had a reading at uh, Portland State University. And something about the Boom Arts workshop is that at that time, I had moved back to Uganda. I had been a student in the US. I had worked with the Sanders Institute Theatre Program, leading uh, an initiative in East Africa. So I had lived in the U.S. for close to 10 years. Um, And so I had moved back to Uganda. And uh, and so I got this invitation to return to the U.S. for the workshop of the play. And my visa was denied, which was so interesting. Felt like, okay, yeah, we are life imitating art. Um, And I truly believe that that workshop would have been so valuable for me but I could not be there physically. I would try to attend the workshop via Skype, 2 a.m., 1 a.m., and um, it was great, but I wasn't able to be in the same space with everyone else. Um, But most recently, two years ago, the Playwrights Rem gave it a workshop, which I felt was the most, most important workshop for me because I came out of that workshop with a kind of script that I had always imagined to have, Uh, and they also gave it a staged production in the Beyond the REM uh, Festival. And uh, a few months ago, at the beginning of this year, um, it was uh, selected to be presented in France as a reading. It made rounds in France as a reading at Audeon Theatre and was also featured at the Avignon Theatre Festival and was recorded by uh, Radio France International. And I believe, in French, I believe I believe that uh, the French version of it is still online. So that's, in a nutshell, that is the origin story and the, the theater uh, history of it.
0: Very powerful. Thank you. Nick, um, tell us about The Dark, and how did you think of it as a play?
2: There's a, there's a similarity. She was talking about how dark it is, uh, the reason I called it the dark is because uh, several reasons. Um, I uh, I'm from Uganda originally. This story is actually about how my mom smuggled me out during the Idi Amin regime. So both Isuru and I are Ugandans. Um, um, in 1979, my mom was studying in England in Leeds. Uh, She's doing a PhD, uh, and she came back. Uh, my dad was uh, married. Uh, and he, she came back under the pretending to just take me to visit my grandparents at the Busia border. But really what she wanted to do was to uh, pull me out of the country because um, news was getting up around the world that uh, the world was about to crumble, pretty much like what we saw in Afghanistan. You know, the, you know there were signs of Afghanistan going the way it was. Similarly, there were signs that Uganda was going the way that it was. and. Um, I never really wanted to write the story, um, but it was in talking to my mother that I noticed uh, many things. And even when we were putting it together and devising it, um, what I suddenly realized is the strength of, you know, because we we looked, I was going to do it as a one man show and I thought it was just going to be kind of my journey and my mother's journey. But what you found were the strength of the women in during these difficult times. So a lot of the narratives of women, particularly in in civil wars, particularly in in Africa, we don't really hear their story and um, the story, even though my, my mother is quite a silent character, she's actually the hero of the story. And so are many of the other women that embody it. Um, I think Simeo would agree to that because she she asked me to do a version of the show in at her festival in Uganda. So that that's why it's called The Dark. Um, and also the other thing, the reason why it's called The Dark is because I wanted to investigate all these characters um, a lot of times when um, People um, tell African stories, we don't get to see many characters. So I wanted to see the different states of darkness that we can exist in. And, and it's not just the darkness of the sky, it could be the darkness of the spirit, the darkness of the times. And it was just an investigation into what, what darkness befalls a paradise. Because um, I think Asima would agree with me, um, Uganda is a paradise, but we have many stories that go that are counter to that paradise.
0: Thank you. And what's the, and what is the production history of the play? A few,
2: um, Fuel Theatre were my producers um, and uh, the the director, Roy Alexander Wise, did it. And we initially devised it. Like I said, we were devising it. We did a a scratch, almost like a a one-man show, which really kind of worked. And then we uh, got some more funding and we put it on together um, at Oval House and it became a two-hander. And then it toured across the whole of, of the u k. So it went to Scotland, across England. um and uh, uh yeah, that that's, yeah, that's pretty much it now. Yeah. but but we did we did do a special reading. The director and I went to Uganda. that's where uh, so and I um, saw each other, and we did a special reading for some of the students at makara University when we were when we were doing an r d and and that was quite touching because it, we got to talk to them and they got to see something that actually represented uh, their culture. So they really enjoyed it. And, they were, and it was very helpful, their feedback. Beautiful.
0: Um, hi, Dima. Hi. So I th- I think, that I believe this is your first, your first play. Um,
3: yes, <laughs> yes it is.
0: Tell us about how you got here.
3: Um, sort of by accident. I, uh, my, <laughs> my, um, my MFA was in fiction, uh, writing. And then as soon as I graduated, I realized I had no interest in fiction. I was very much more interested in, in, um, what was going on. Right. And I, and, um, and I was already, I had been acting for the stage, um, since I was 18. And so, um, it kind of just made sense to, try writing something for this stage but that really just um the idea for that came came to me because i realized that in all my years acting in beirut i'd never seen anybody who looked like me on stage um there were no queer women non-binary characters um on stage so i'm like well i guess guess i'm gonna write this one um and so so that's kind of where the, the, the idea for it, um, came up and that was in, you know, 2016 or 2017, but I felt like I had no idea how to write a play. And so I just, um, uh, kept postponing it. And then, um, at the end of 2018, I was, uh, preparing for a storytelling event. So I was supposed to be writing a story to, to, to present the next day and instead i wrote the first three pages of this play um and, and i gave it a title i gave it the title that it has now and i'm like oh this is a good title i should probably write a play to go along with it um and at that time uh catherine corey who uh, is a theater uh professor at nyu asked me what i was up to and if i was writing anything and i'm like well yes, there's this play that I'm I'm writing. It's like, oh, send me the first few pages. And so I had to write the first few pages um, and, and send it to her. So the, the first kind of um, step in this play's life was uh, a, re- um, a reading of this play at uh, NYU as part of uh, Queer Arab Voices Plays in Translation. And that was in April 2019. Um, and then, um, I got to perform another version of it at the Shubak festival, which is kind of the biggest, um, Arab, uh, world arts festival in London. And I went straight to Sundance after that to work with Lisa Crone uh, as my dramaturg to develop it and then came back here and, um, and worked with my director, um and we premiered it in february 2020 just 3 weeks before the whole world shut down
0: and, and where where are you joining us from today
3: oh right beirut <laughs> i'm uh, i'm in beirut it's it's dark here too um and um yeah and i was actually in new york a few months ago and i did a i did a street performance version version of it and it was beautiful because it was the first time i was performing to a real live audience after two years of performing on a screen and that was beautiful um but yeah so basically um I wrote it as a story because this is how I'm trained as a storyteller and um and um and so it just felt natural to me to to tell it the way i would tell my friends right this is what's going on in my life and this is what i want to share with you and so yeah that's how that's how it happened
0: great well it works beautifully as a play and also i think as um you know as a podcast and one of the things that we were talking about uh just briefly earlier is uh we you know the international play reading Festival has been live for for many years and over the past 2 years uh we have um chosen to use this podcast form format um which has some advantages i mean it's always nicer to be live but um but it also required each of you to i would imagine rethink your uh, works to some extent um And I'm curious about the particular challenges of adapting it for this podcast Mm -hmm. format, or was it really easy? Um, I would think Nick, particularly since, as you said, the original production was for two people, and two actors, and um, you gave us permission to have more actors
2: it was a bit of both for me it was e- it was better to have uh, i'm really glad that my nj my producer um wanted more actors that made it easier to tell the story uh so we doubled up each actor got to to play two roles but it meant that there were more people playing them um i think what was important was getting the sense of time moving right and and uh and, and also the the accents, I think it's really important when doing a um, a Ugandan play, East African plays, getting the accents right. A lot of times accents can move into a kind of generic African accent, but there's actually uh, uh, a nuance. And I think um, what NJ really got and she was quite uh, thorough with was making sure that we we got that the inference is right, um, and that was what uh, took time—not in a bad way. Uh, I mean, I think actors always want to nail their parts, but as soon as they go, "Oh, you want me to nail it this way," or "or, or the stress is here," because there's a lot of humor in, um, or even um, satire in 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 the way that East Africans present themselves. There's just a, a natural humor in how they they uh, they talk, and I think. Um, the producer really, under, the director really understood that, and that was what was uh, my concern, just in general, because it's a concern in in most kind of African plays. But she she nailed that, and then the actors really gave themselves space to play around with that, and it was noticeable, and in the uh, in the rendition that they put on. Um, but also, also what you lose is the visual element. But I think part of theatre is your mind and the imagination, and I, I think part of the magic of my play is that I want you to be in the dark. I want you to kind of is imagine for yourself what is out there. So we we could, we could lend ourselves to time. So a lot of it is actually about timing and stillness and execution of, of, of tone and language.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this would be maybe a good moment to acknowledge the directors of these podcasts, uh, NJ Aguna, as Nick just mentioned, um, for uh, for the dark, um, Nana Dakin for seamways play, and Noel Gusani for Dimas. Let me toss it to Dima. Uh, Dima, uh, Dima. The question is um, having to do having to adapt this into a podcast format, and how did that affect you?
3: The fact that I, I'm right, I'm the only person. Right, it's a one person performance. It uh, it made. Uh, parts of this easy that it was just um it was just me talking um but at the same time I remember recording in um in you know in this bedroom in uh in Brooklyn and trying to like make sure that no sounds were around me and it was the loneliest thing uh it was just you know I could only hear myself and. Um, and this, this is, you know, it's storytelling. It's it's made for an audience. I talk to people throughout the whole thing. There's no other characters, just me and the audience, and they're very much part of the play. And so, so I'm there, you know, um, uh, in in this little little bedroom, trying to pretend that I'm talking to people. Um, and, and that was, that was difficult. I'm like, Oh, I, 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 need faces. I need, I need to see who I'm talking to. And, um, and there's a lot of humor in the play and it's, it's weird. I'm like, Oh, this is not funny anymore. So so I was also really self-conscious about that. Um, but also at the same time, this is very much, um, you know, when I, when I listened to it, uh, for the first time, um, I realized that it really replicates the intimacy very well that it's just my voice talking to whoever's listening. And, and I think that really, um, you know, that kind of manifesting really, really paid off and it was, it was beautiful and very moving.
0: Yeah. Cause in the original script, there are references to where you invite the audience to do things. Um, and mm-hmm. of, of course that would be, that was adapted uh, differently for the podcast. So I've like specific questions that I'm uh, your plays made me curious about. Um, and where, so I'll start with Dima. Um, so uh, ha, has your um, perspective on the piece changed in the past, um, in the, the past what year and a half since uh, since you originally wrote and performed it. Um, because so much of the piece is about uh, about perspective, about constructed narratives and constructed identities. So um, I'm wondering um, from where you are sitting and broadcasting to us now, how are you feeling?
3: Um, thank you for, for, for this question. I've thought about it so much. I um when I was, you know, preparing to come to to go to New York to to perform it um last this past June, I thought I I looked at it and I realized how much has changed um in the world, but also in the Beirut I describe in the play sort of no longer exists, right? In the in the past couple of years, we've um suffered one of the most worst one of the worst economic collapses in the world and um you know the third biggest non-nuclear explosion. And so so really when I talk about um even some streets, you know, I talk about Madam Khail and that was like where all the bars were and where um, you know in every article written by like some white person, it would be like, oh, the trendy night out in Mar Mikhail. And of course they butcher the, the pronunciation. And, um, and, but that was the street that suffered the most during the blast. And so um, I came back to the play and I realized that the Beirut I was talking about uh, changed. I changed. Um, and I wondered if I should rewrite it, right? Because it is part of, part of what I had in mind for the play is that it is a well-rehearsed um, story, that I never fully memorized the script as it is. But uh, but I kept it as it is because I realized that I really wanted it to be um, an archive, an archive of what Beirut was like before 2020 and what I was like before 2020 when the world pretty much um, felt like it ended. And so, so, yeah, that is that is kind of the shift that happened but also why i wanted to keep it the same.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um I'd like to ask a, a same way about um about the immigration process and um uh specific notions you might have about how the it could become more humane.
1: If i could actually kind of direct my response to the visa part of the immigration um, because that's the one I think I'm more familiar with. Uh, For me, I think one thing that I've always asked myself is why there's no legal process in place for some of the visa denials, specifically like the F1, that is the student visa or B1, B2, that is like uh, tourist business visas. And those are the visas I think that get denied the most. And why am I saying that there needs to be a legal system in place to challenge such deniers? Consular officers, visa consular officers actually have powers to deny someone and there's nothing that where they can be challenged legally. And the, the interesting thing about that is that I've been to visa interviews where a visa consular officer does not even take a look at my supporting documents. And in those cases, I sometimes have been denied visas. Other times I've been granted visas. Like the last visa interview I was at, um, the consular officer did not even ask me any question in regards to why I was traveling. I entered the interview booth with a novel. I can't even remember what novel I was carrying and our conversation centered on that novel and on our favorite authors. And that was my interview. And uh, she said, come back at this time and collect your visa. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a bit strange. And I know that there are people who have had interviews that have lasted for less than a minute and they have been denied. So really in such circumstances, you have to ask yourself, is this objective? And I think at the end of the day, really office, these visa officers issue visas depending or deny visas depending on the mood they are in. Um, and, and so I think there needs to be a policy where you know someone can really challenge such a decision if they have been denied a visa and they have not gone through the process that the embassy stipulates they need to go through on their website, they say, bring this document, bring this document, and applicants take these documents and they're not even looked at. So, what dis- how, how do these visa consular officers make such decisions of denial? So, that's one, uh, a legal system where such denials can be challenged. And the second uh, one is, I think, a system where it is very clear that the, the playing ground is even for everyone. You know, regardless of where people are applying from. I, I will give an example why I'm saying that. The very first time I applied for for my US, US visa, I was invited for a workshop in theater. And three East Africans had been invited. Three uh, Polish students had been invited from Poland. And then the other three were going to be Americans. And it was going to be in the US. Now, when we went to apply for our visas as, as East Africans, it was it was insane we were made to sing and dance to prove that we were true artists and we were going for what we said we were going for and some of us had already you know finished school some of us were already in the field practicing art uh, whereas the stu- the the artists from poland were still students undergrad students now when it came to issuing visas they each got a 10-year visa. And for us East Africans, we got a three month visa each and single entry. Okay. Because the assumption is that, and I've read this from somewhere, the assumption is that if someone is coming from a country that is considered unstable socioeconomically or politically, chances are they're intended illegal immigrants. Uh, and so you can really tell that the the, the, the application system is not even for all. I, I, in fact, I remember personally. I was told you must be an intended illegal immigrant because one, you're young; two, you're ma- you're not married. So, what are you coming back for to return to your country? And and so you know. And of course, the the students from Poland were way younger than me. So really, and also, what is interesting for me is that they are. There is what they call a, a visa waiver program, which is a program that is actually applicable for people from specific countries, and most of these countries are in Europe. And I have read somewhere that most of these people are the ones who overstay their visas and eventually become illegal immigrants. But on the one hand, these are the people who overstay their visas and become illegal immigrants, but they are the ones who actually are given. You know all the benefits, whereas people who have got to go through all these applications and are less likely to to overstay their visas are the ones who have to go through these experiences, like I was sharing. So I think there needs to be uh, uh, an even ground for all the applicants, regardless of who they are and where they are applying from.
0: Great, thank you. That those are concrete and feel really unjust. Um, um Nick, I'd like to know as you know, we've um as an artist, as an actor, as a as a writer um of color in the UK, um, how do you feel that um UK theater has been uh dealing with uh issues of diversity, uh EDIA issues, which we uh have been so uh, lacking in America, um, h- how do you feel it is in the UK?
2: We suffer the same problems of diversity. There's a, a lack. I think um, there are many versions of it. I, I think, I mean, diversity is, is such a big soup, but I, um, if you're talking about color or gender, or um, I think it starts at the top where you don't have enough people of difference in the room where they make decisions. Um, and if that's the case, it means you're not getting an accurate spectrum of the world that you exist in. Um, I, and, you know, I mean, I recently, um, with fuel, um, over the, during the pandemic, we, um, and some other artists put together a manifesto, you know, just talking about safe space, because at the end of the day, all an artist wants to do is, you know, Simeon was kind of, uh, alluding to in her story. You just want to create art. You know, And you want to do it without feeling threatened or or put upon or made to feel unwelcome. Um, and I think there's a naivety because whatever the status quo is, the people who are benefiting from the status quo do not have the impact of those on the fringes. And so I, and I think there's a lack of understanding. I think the only thing that's made that understanding uh, come to light is well or two incidences one is george floyd because we suddenly saw we suddenly saw something that made us have to use our compassion and we saw it while the world was standing still and then and i and i think and then the other thing is is because we are we have been in the world pandemic we suddenly had to prioritize the things that actually matter so i think um, in the arts a lot of things that were put in priority over diversity were things that didn't matter. You know, it was, it was there was a hierarchy, and on and all, all And, the, and um, I, what what people miss is that diversity actually can make your business more profitable. Diversity will bring in new audiences. Diversity will actually tell you new stories. And my my question is, why do not why do the people in power not want to be part of that conversation? Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, that was, yeah, um, totally.
0: And yeah. and. I I do happen to agree with that, that there is a there's a a writer in this country named a commentator named Jeff Yang, who uh, said that um, white supremacy is no longer a viable business model Um, because we are, you know, certainly in in this country, we're looking at um, a population which will be uh, majority BIPOC by 2040. So we um, are going to go... We have a little time for Q&A. And let me take a look at what I've got here. One question is, each of these plays are different, but they all seem to have a theme of home. Um, As an artist who works internationally, um, what do you consider to be your home?
2: Uh, Well, the funny thing is is, that In Africa or in East Africa, anyway, when you say home, you mean, you always mean Uganda. So it doesn't matter where you are. If my mom says I'm going home, what she means is she's going back to Uganda. But for me, home is where my family is. That's the kind of, for my mind. So wherever my son is right here next to me. So he's at home. But um, um, what this was, this play for me was about realizing when I became the other. Because up until that, up until I had to leave, I was just a boy. But as soon as I left, I became a black boy. I became, as you know, Simo just said, with immigration. That's how my story ends, at immigration as well. I became this thing that people didn't believe. So I think home is where you're welcome. Um, it's taken me a while to pe- to feel like I'm welcome here in the UK. But what's made that happen is my, my wife and my children and my friends. But I, I think I will always be um, an African, an East African, a Ugandan. Um, regardless of whatever the world holds for me. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, uh, yeah. I don't.
3: This is an interesting question because I feel, I wonder if people in the United States who go tour their plays elsewhere will be asked this question because I feel like they're just like, oh, of course, your home is um, the most important country in the center of the world. Um, so... So I don't know. I feel like it's a it's a tricky question. But um, to answer it more plainly, I would say that of course it's Beirut. And um, Nick mentioned something that is beautiful: as home is where you're welcome. Um, and I and I feel that, and I don't feel that here, right? As a as a queer person, as um, as a as a person, right? At this point, right? With with what what is happening here, we're not very welcome, but. My family's here and my friends are here and the reason why I make art is here and the art that I make is for the people that are here. So if I go abroad, it's so that um, I have access to different audiences and so that they have access to my art. But people need to know that, you know, if I go perform it um, in London or in New York or et cetera, they're listening to what I'm telling my people here. Um, and it is not addressed to them. So I think that's important for me.
1: For me, I have lived in many places and I've called those places home. Right now, where I live, which is Kampala, is home. This is where I was, I wasn't born and raised here, but because I live here, it is now home. And why do I call it home for now? And why would I say that it might change in the next few years? It's because wherever I'm doing art and I'm connected with a community of artists, for me, that is home. Um, this is where I'm doing art right now. This is where together with other colleagues, I am supporting a constituent of other artists. And so for now, this is home. And tomorrow, if I find myself in another place and I'm doing what I'm doing, that will be home. However, having said that, um, many years ago, I read somewhere where someone was saying that home is where one's heart is. And, and uh, I think for me, that that definition of home would be every place where I have had a very, very strong connection uh, to people, uh, to family, but also to a community of artists. So really, for me, the definition of home is not necessarily a physical space. It is, I think, an artistic and spiritual space.
0: Thank you. Um... We have a question, um, how does um, each one of these plays inform the rest of your work? Um, what are your hopes for the future? Um, and I know that in some cases um, you are, you know, the, the play is a relatively new form for uh, for you. And so how does this relate to your writing in general? Uh, yeah, for me, um it's weird
2: cuz the first thing i wrote properly uh that it was my was my first poetry collection called Kingdom of Gravity which looks at the same historical era so it looks at um the Idi Amin regime which is from 71 to 79 um this the dark uh goes into that same time frame but only looks at one day um and then now i'm i actually working on my second poetry collection and I, I realized not intentionally but in many way the, this is a trilogy of works and uh, I never understood it before when people would say that you there are things that your mind ruminates on and you know you were talking about home and and uh, I heard Dima talk about it is that you know as much as I you know I've you know I was born in Uganda I lived in Uganda until I was four I've been in and out infrequently but Uganda is a very important part of of who I say I am you know you know despite the the pros and cons of how i've had to be away from it for so long and i think my my mind is constantly interrogating it so i'm re i'm i'm interrogating it again in this the second a second collection but what is probably a trilogy of works and um I, I i realize artists can only go with their curiosity and i thought i'd let it go when i did the 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 first book I thought I'd, I'd let it go when I did the dark, you know I was, I was really ready to kind of let it go. But what you suddenly realize is you have to accept who you are. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm a castle, but you see how they work. Why they keep working in a certain way is because they're accepting who they are. But then it's about mastery of that. So I really want to be able to tell this story. And you're not just. And I really like what Dina said is that you're not telling this story for yourself. You're telling this story for the people who are you know, who, who the story belongs to. The story belongs to Uganda and I want them to know, to know that they existed. And it's a part, we are all, we are, we are dynamic storytellers, dynamic historians. We don't, we don't just report news. We tell it to you in a way that engages the imagination, engages the spirit, engages the heart. And, you know, I, I I think that's what, I don't know if I've answered your question, but. uh, Yes. You're uh, always
0: answered the questions well. (laughs) a same way. Is this a a question you want to address? You have quite a large body of of, uh, plays, and how do you feel this fits into your body of work?
1: I think I started really writing things that people are gracious to call plays when I was doing grad school in the U.S. And for me, being away from home, this question of home again, being away from home, uh, Uganda, and beginning to see Uganda from afar, give me a new perspective uh, about Uganda as a country, about uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, but also most importantly, the relationship between the West or the so-called developed countries to to the so-called developing ones. And so most of my work really tackles themes that have to do with this relationship. Of course, my past is a colonial past we are colonized by the British. Uh, and so from that point of view, how have we existed in this very interesting relationship between the so-called developing world and the so-called developed world? So my, my work covers issues to do with foreign aid. What does that mean for, for the so-called aid? to come from the West and go to to these African countries. And in the most cases, this aid does not trickle down to the people that it is intended for, that it gets, you know, messed up by corrupt politicians. And then it's, you know, the taxpayers' money in the US or in Europe never get to know that the so-called aid they send to these countries actually does not get to the people that they are, that are supposed to get it. And then also the question of some of this so-called aid is actually not aid. It's, it. these are loans that I will pay, that my children will pay and that probably my children's children will have to pay. So those are some of the things that I, I question. Um, and also, things to do with civil war and how, in most cases, the West benefits by having unstable countries in sub-Saharan Africa, how that fuels uh, the stealing of resources for the most part by um, the Western powers. So my play, Forgotten World, centers around those. Uh, themes and, and the issue of, of child soldiers and how some of these stories are actually taken uh, by the Western media for profit gain uh, at the expense of the suffering of, of, the, of the people. Uh, the play that I've been working on for the last two three years is called, Do They Know It's Christmas? And it is a play that was inspired uh, by a song called Do They Know It's Christmas, which was um, recorded in the 80s during the famine in Ethiopia and was redone during the outbreak of, uh, of Ebola in West Africa. Uh, was done by uh, a band called Band Aid. And, uh, and so I'm kind of uh, flipping the story to say what if actually the help, that, that the West is the one that needs help. Uh, and the help could come from Africa. So, so my, I think the recurring theme is the relationship between the so-called developing world and the so-called developed world. For me.
0: Good, thank you. I want to see that. I want to see the new play. Um, Dima, are you? Are you? Do you imagine you will continue to, or, or are you writing a new play?
3: I am. I am. I just finished the first draft um, of a new play. And this time I, I, am telling people, I graduated to two characters <laughs> going from one to two. Um, and it's uh, it's an examination of uh queer intimate partner violence. And um, I find that I'm still, and it's something that Nick said right about ruminate, ruminating. And I think, I think, Artists are people who are obsessive, right? Like, what are we obsessed about? This is what we're making art about. And I'm very much obsessed with um, unreliability of memory, or our unreliability as um, as narrators, and how when something happens, right? It's an event, and then when it ha- when you remember it, it's the memory, and then you remember it again, it's the memory of a memory, etc. And so it will always change. And that is also very queer, right? You will never have the same narrative twice unless you memorize it. But then the more you memorize it, the more it is removed from the truth. And so I find myself still thinking about these things and thinking about how to translate it more vividly or accurately in in a play. So that's, that's where I'm at.
0: Well, thank you so much uh, to all three of you, uh, of course, for your work, uh, but also for your insights. I just wanna go around and see if there's, is there anything that you want to add before we um, conclude this uh, episode of the of the podcast series? Um, Asimwe, do you have anything you wanna add?
1: Uh, just to thank you so much for having me for sharing this amazing space with Udima and Nick. Hi Nick, hi Nick. We miss you, come back to Uganda. Um, thank you so, so much for for having me. And I wanted to say that I, I really appreciate ac- academic institutions and most, at least the ones that I have been connected to in the US. Y- you are so interested in international work, which is, not necessarily true for most theaters or arts companies in the United States. And I really want to applaud you for that. Thank you so much for considering International Voices. Thank you.
0: Our pleasure. And we're glad that we can do this. Um, Nick, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I,
2: I really, um, I, I I echo everything that um, Simway said. I also want to get back to you kind of on a, on a flip side, but more importantly, I really, Thank Columbia for being visionary in this way and understanding the importance of reaching out to plays. And I don't know how we were the three lucky ones that were chosen. Because we loved your plays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um I I also liked being able to see it through other people's eyes because that's so useful to an artist to be able to see how your work can be retold. Because I think that's what a quality of a good story is, is that it can be retold and it no longer becomes your story, it becomes a story of the world but more importantly is um and i don't know if anyone uh the other two of can attest to this is that how you you were so professional with us and you made your time available we we're all in different time zones but you 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 try to make it as easy as possible for us to to make this happen in a very difficult time and i can i can attest as a black artist i felt safe i felt looked after and i felt proud to be a part of it i, I really do mean that from the bottom of my heart and um it's one of the um i don't know joys but also triumphs of this year for me so i just
0: want to thank you for for that thank you dima
3: um yes i definitely want to echo what asemoy and uh nick said and it's such a pleasure and honor to be among um such beautiful and important voices um and to um to be in the presence of um of theater that is changing minds, changing lives, and changing narratives, right? Um, this is more than ever the moment for that, and so um, to have this beautiful platform has been um, has been so important. It's um, it's um, always a challenge uh, whenever um, you know a person of color connects with. Um, you know, any like the U.S., for example, we there's such a fear of being tokenized of um, of going like, oh, here, you know, Beirut is uh, is uh, collapsing. Let's have an artist from Beirut, uh, you know, and let's all, um, you know, uh, look at all the misery. Right. So it's it's such a it's such a it's something that I've experienced. And to echo what Nick said, this was such a safe uh environment that is beautiful and so supportive and definitely uh one of the highlights of, of my year. So thank you so much for this and for your time and amazing work. Right.
0: Well, thank you all for enriching us. We are honored by your work and your presence. The only thing that is sad this year is we can't all go out for a drink. Um but um I'm glad that that you felt safe and you felt well taken care of. Certainly that has been our intention. Um And I want to acknowledge all of those who made this series possible uh, this year. Um, My my um, co-director, Carol, um, and just to name, there's so many people who were involved in this, but just to name a few, uh, Gavin Browning, Jesse Cotter, uh, the selection committee, all our directors, our cast, our student producers, our student dramaturgs, uh, the sound people, um, it, uh, it was like, it's like putting together a, um, a live production uh, and everybody worked hard, uh, gave their time, gave their energy and was committed to the process. Um, so thank you all. And uh, on behalf of, of Carol Becker and myself, uh, this concludes the 2021 Columbia University School of the Arts International Play Reading Festival podcast series. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to be back next year. This podcast episode is copyrighted by the trustees of Columbia University in the City of New York. The work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.